Well, good morning. Oh, I hope you all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't hear uh, Alan, we're going to find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3. That's in the New Testament. We're looking at verses 15 to 29 this morning. It's a large chunk of scripture. We're going to look at it from about a 30,000 foot view. I'll tell you more about it as we get to this section. Uh, as you open or load your Bible, just a couple of quick announcements, quick updates. The first one is if you're new, we want to hang out with you. We want to take you out to lunch dinner or coffee and so fill out a connect card drop it in the connect desk which is located in the back and we'll set something up in addition to that if you don't have a bible let us hook you up we love god's word we preach from god's word and so we want to hook you up with that gift and if you know someone that could benefit from having it then definitely take a few uh, the last thing is that after service that if you're a volunteer a sunday morning volunteer we are having a volunteer appreciation lunch for you after service. This is to honor you. This is because we love you. This is because you do such a wonderful job making Sunday mornings possible. And so we can, once more, we want to honor and love you. Uh, we want to do a couple of things in that time. Uh, one, celebrate you. Two, give you a couple of updates regarding Sunday mornings. And then a brief look into Sunday mornings as we begin to plan for 2022, which is kind of nuts because that's like eight weeks away. So anyway, all that being said, that's just going to be a snapshot. It won't take up all of our time. Uh, the majority of our time is going to be laughing, celebrating, and eating as much as we can. Um, once more, we're going to find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And man, I'd like to start by way of analogy, or at least I'll try. I'll do my best. We'll see if I swing or hang. My son and I were at a concert this past week in Austin, a heavy metal concert, and it was awesome. It was amazing, the band was great, the musicianship was on point, and the entertainment of the show, the entirety of the show, was simply spectacular. I'm not gonna lie, it was, it was awesome. Uh, in addition to just enjoying the show, I very, very, very quickly realized that I am no spring chicken anymore. <laughs> As uh, we were hanging out and, and enjoying the concert, one of the band members, you could just see him just trying to get through the show. His body's beat up. He doesn't even really headbang anymore. He's just jamming. And uh, I felt how he looked. And so I, uh, in addition to that, the next morning, I could just feel all of the soreness. I think I went too hard on the first two songs. And then the rest of the show, that was kind of it. I would just kind of like do cab raises to act like I was jumping. And uh, that didn't really help. Nevertheless, uh, my favorite part about the show was seeing my son like headbang, scream and sing along and rock out. That was, that was the best. Apart from all of that, at one point during the show, the lead singer thanks everyone for, for coming out and, and supporting them and, and, and watching the concert and being a part of it. And he goes on to thank everybody for everyone's support over the last 22 years. And he goes on to say that, that they have become, in terms of their success, their, their success is largely due to their fan base. And he goes on to say, the singer's name is Corey Taylor. He goes on to say, you have been with us for 22 years. That's two decades through the sweat, tears, and especially the blood. And because we all share that blood, that makes us family. 
And as he said that, we're outside, uh, uh, we're outside of Austin in this giant amphitheater and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fans. And he says, we're all family. And you just see this wave of people stand up and scream and shout because they've been so loyal to the band for the last two decades. Or there was a new set of fans that were just learning about this band and just jumping and screaming because they have been impacted by their music. And so as I get to watch all of that, because I wasn't jumping anymore, as I get to watch everybody just roar and scream and shout, I began to think, everyone here is roaring because of their loyalty to this band. They, they know what it's taken them. Some of them, like, like myself, got to see them when they first started. It showed how much all of these fans loved the band. And I began to think, how much more should it be for the church? You see, the church did not have to spill any of her blood in order to become a family. Rather, it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we are a family. It was his blood, rather, that was spilled on the cross in our place and for our sin so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. In today's text, the Apostle Paul will close out this big argument that, he's, that he started back in chapter 2. He's closing out this big argument on justification by faith. That is how an individual can be made right before God. How an individual can be made just before God. This has been a doctrine that we have been examining and investigating for the last three weeks. And so in the event that you weren't here last week, let me give you a quick overview of what we covered. In the opening of chapter 3, the apostle opens by calling the Galatians out on three different things. And we looked at this last week. All of this is last week. He calls the Galatians out for three different things. Their lack of discernment, their lack of understanding when it comes to doctrine, and their lack of defense of Christ's substitutionary work for them. In the first third of his argument of chapter 3, Paul has the Gentiles, or excuse me, he has the Galatians reflect on their experience of their conversion in order to remind them how they came to know Jesus and as a result, how they are then sanctified in Jesus and it is by faith. In the second and third portion of our time last week, Paul then takes the Galatians back to the Old Testament referring to Abraham and provides a lesson on history and theology. See, the reason for this is that there were false teachers who were trying to persuade the Galatians that in order to be truly holy, in order to truly belong to God, they must obey the Mosaic law and specifically the right of circumcision. You see, to these false teachers who were known as the Judaizers, they, they saw two groups. They saw Gentiles and then they saw Jews. And you were either a Jew by birth or you were a Jew by culture. And so they were promoting division within the church by trying to persuade the Galatians to adopt the Mosaic law, specifically circumcision, in order to actually be justified. Paul informs the Galatians by taking them all the way back to Genesis 15 
to show that Abraham, even Abraham, came to know God through faith. And to a degree, this is where we find ourselves again this morning. Paul takes us back to the Old Testament to further elaborate on the distinction between the promise God makes to Abraham and the purpose of the law, that is the Mosaic law, given by God to Moses, to the people of God. And so here's Paul's big point in this section of Galatians. And in turn, this is how it affects you and I. That the reason we're going all the way back to the Old Testament is so that you know that being a part of the family of God and family to one another came by the promise of faith alone. In fact, our main idea, and we could say it this way, the promise of God is permanent sonship and union in Christ by faith alone. I'll say that one more time. The promise of God is permanent sonship and union in Christ by faith alone. So although we're going to look at Galatians 3, as you have your Bibles open, have your fingers ready to go back to Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15, because we're going to spend some time there in order to understand a little bit more of the context to which Paul is speaking. Now, With that being said, let me tell you a little bit about verses 15 to 29. Our text is simple, but it's not easy. And so I'm going to do my best to break it down as best as possible and then wrap it up in the end. And you might have questions afterwards. I'm down to listen to them. I'm also positive your time at MC this week is going to be fruitful. And if verses 15 to 29 are a little challenging or or a little difficult to understand, let me encourage you with two things. Even the Apostle Peter said Paul was hard to understand. Briefly, just listen to the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, he writes, and count the patience of our Lord is salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Here it is. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So even though there were people taking what Paul was saying and twisting it and trying to formulate it to their own thing, Peter at the same time recognizes, hey, if you think Paul is a little difficult to understand, we're in the same boat. It's okay. That's number one. The second thing I want to encourage you with is don't let the challenge of this text keep you from digging into it or keep you from following along. Growth in understanding God's word is something we're all working on. So as we dig into this text, let us pray for humility. Let us pray that God's spirit would illuminate our hearts and understanding. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in, beginning at verse 15. Join me in prayer. God, we praise you this morning. 
in allowing us to gather and worship and examine your word together. God, would you grant us understanding this morning? Would you grant us understanding so that we would grow deeper in our love for Jesus? You tell us to ask for what we do not have, but to ask in faith. And so we ask for illumination. We ask for understanding. And we ask for wisdom. Holy Spirit, guide our hearts this morning. Expose our hearts and comfort our hearts by your grace. And it is by your grace we ask that you would call those who don't know Jesus this morning. God, may you be glorified in our time together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to examine this text by looking at three sections. And so I'm going to, again, try to make it as as simple as possible. We're going to look at three sections. We're going to look at the permanent promise. That's verses 15 to 18. We're going to look at the purpose of the law. That's 19 through 22. And then finally, we're going to look at the partnership of faith and works. That is 23 through 29. We're going to begin with the permanent promise as we consider verses 15 to 18. Paul opens up, and I want you to notice two things. Paul opens up by saying, to give a human example, brothers. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important little statement, right? It's an important little statement because in the opening verses of chapter 3, Paul calls the Galatians foolish on two different occasions. And last week, as we examined that word, he was being rather harsh with them in addressing them as, let's just say fools, right? That'll be the easier way of saying it. He was addressing them as fools. But in addition to that, I want to remind you that as we looked at our time in the opening verses of chapter 3 last week, we looked at Paul not calling the Galatians out just for the sake of calling the Galatians out. You know what I'm saying? Paul had a purpose in addressing the Galatians. And although he addresses them harshly, although he calls them out, the aim of Paul in calling the Galatians out was to walk them toward wisdom. And so the remainder of chapter 3 is Paul taking that charge very seriously. He is walking the Galatians towards wisdom. Now, how does that relate to verse 15? Whereas verse 1, he says, oh, you foolish Galatians, verse 15, he calls them brothers. So he's reeling it in. He's given the harsh word. He's given them their rebuke. And now he begins to walk them toward wisdom. And that's incredibly important because once again, that was his charge. That was his motivation. Yes, he wanted to rebuke them. Yes, he wanted to call them out. But more importantly, he wanted them to know Jesus better because Paul had a deep love for the Galatians. And we will examine this love further when we go into chapter 4. Nevertheless, as we walk into this section, when Paul addresses the Galatians, you're going to notice that he uses several examples and analogies to help them better understand and connect the dots as to why the law of God matters. In verses 15 to 18, his aim, his goal is to unpack the promise of God made to Abraham. 
okay? So here we go. He opens by saying, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So here's his first analogy. His first analogy is that, for instance, when an individual writes a will and seals it, it is only the individual who can make any changes to that will, right? Is the, the only person who can make changes to the will is the one who wrote it. Further, when that individual dies, their will is ratified. In other words, now it is being executed. Now it takes into effect, or now it goes into effect. Now it is official. And once it is official, no one can make any changes to the will. Whatever is in there stays in there. And so as Paul begins to lead us into the promise of God to Abraham, he goes on to start with an an analogy of a will saying, if an individual who writes a will, uh, if he's the only one who can change it and no one else can change it, how much more a promise and a covenant made by God to Abraham. So he's kind of setting us up. And so as he addresses him, and he gives this analogy of that a will, his argument is that the promise God made to Abraham goes all the way back to Genesis 12. So, told you to have your Bibles ready. Here we go, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So in Genesis 12, then Abram receives this promise from God to be blessed. And what I want you to notice is that it is God who initiates this promise. We're going to talk a little bit more on that a bit. God is the one who initiates this promise to Abram. In Genesis 15, God ratifies this promise. In other words, God uh, makes it official. It go- he executes this promise. So... Genesis 15, beginning in verse 9, God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought him all these, but cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. When the sun, this is verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Okay? So Abraham brings these animals, he sacrifices these animals, he lays them like on their halves, and what you see is what signifies, represents God walking through them. In the Old Testament, walking through them was a way of signing off and entering into a covenant. This is his way of saying, this promise that I gave you back in Genesis 12 is now sealed. I am the one who enacted this covenant with you. That was his promise, that was his seal. It has now gone into effect. That's Paul's argument. That's why he's giving that little example of a will as an example. 
That's Paul's argument that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. The reason that's important is because the Judaizers were trying to persuade the Galatians out of Genesis 17, saying, no, 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 Abraham came to faith, yes, but it was through circumcision. Let's look back at the law. Last week, we talked about Paul's way of saying things. It was like, yeah, you want to look at theology? Let's look at theology by going further back. Let's actually look at what happened. And the reason this is incredibly important is because as these false teachers were trying to persuade the Galatians that Abraham was under the Mosaic law and subscribed specifically to circumcision is because Paul hits them with Genesis 12 and 15 to show them that the law they're talking about didn't come till almost 500 years after God made this promise with Abraham. Paul is showing the Galatians, Paul is showing the Galatians that the promise of God to Abraham was not only made first, but it is primary and it is superior to the law. Paul makes his point further by saying that if the promise God made with Abraham came by following the law, then the promise made in Genesis 12 and 15 is annulled and void. So let's look at that little phrase, or let's look at that passage. To give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, we're back in Galatians 3, no one annuls it to it, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Only the party who started it is the one that can make changes. And God, I don't know if you knew this, doesn't change his mind. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is, Christ would come from Abraham. Christ would be the truest son of Abraham. And then he breaks it down a little bit more. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. He's saying just because the law came 430 years after, in this case, Genesis 15, doesn't make Genesis 15 void. In fact, what it does, it shows that the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15 is superior. It is primary. And he closes, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Here's what I want you to know as we've looked at Genesis 12, Genesis 15. Here's the one thing I want you to walk away from this section. I want you to see God's faithfulness. This quick look at Genesis 12 and 15 shows God's faithfulness toward his people. You see, first he makes a promise to Abraham, then he ratifies it by entering into a covenant with Abraham, and the truest offspring of Abraham, that is Jesus, he is the one that fulfills this law. That is, not only living a sinless life, but walking a life of righteousness. One that the Jewish people could not do. One that the Gentiles cannot do. One that you and I 
cannot do. And ultimately, leading to the cross, Jesus makes a way for us to be reconciled to the Father and forgiven of our sins by dying in our place. Verses 15 through 18 demonstrate the faithfulness of God toward his people. I mean, think about it. At this point, what is it that Abraham has done? He didn't do anything. What is it that we have done except believe by faith? See, that's the point. That's the point. God's faithfulness to his promises do not return void. His faithfulness to his promises is permanent. His faithfulness to his promise for you in Christ is sonship. And you can't change that. And it is permanent. You permanently belong to God in Christ through faith. And it was a promise that was made back in Genesis 15. It was a promise that was fulfilled through the righteousness of Christ. And it is a promise that exists for you today. You have permanent sonship in Christ through faith. The promise made to Abraham that was fulfilled by Christ and extended to the Gentiles, to you and I, is that because of Jesus, we permanently belong to God. And there's nothing, listen to me on this, there is nothing anyone can do about it. This sonship that you and I have was credited to us by faith alone. Over the last two weeks, I was talking to, I think, Eric about this a couple of days ago. Over the last two weeks, and I didn't necessarily think that this series would lead us to this place. But over the last few weeks, as we've been talking about justification by faith, one of the, if you will, applications has been to simply sit and receive God's grace. And I have found, and I think I made, mentioned this last week, and this isn't necessarily like I'm, I'm immune to this, I have found that it is very difficult for us to sit and receive God's grace. But as we consider verses 15 to 18, there is still nothing left for us to do other than sit in God's grace for us because the permanent sonship that you have in Christ goes all the way back, several millennia actually. You have to sit in that. And you would say, well, that makes me uncomfortable. Good. I'm glad it makes you uncomfortable. And the reason it makes us uncomfortable is because we want to work our way through this. That we want to earn our way into a relationship with Jesus. That's exactly what the Judaizers were trying to tell the Galatians. If you really want to be holy, if you truly want to belong to God, if you want to be the really real Israel, then here's what you're going to do. And that's where Paul challenges them. And he challenges them 
by going all the way back to, to Genesis 15 and reminding them of the promise God made to Abraham and reminding them that the promise is superior to the law and reminding them that the promise is permanent for the offspring, fulfilled in Christ for our benefit. So that then leads us into verse 19. My man Paul here anticipates a question, and he's been doing that since chapter two. He anticipates questions, or he asks rhetorical questions, and then answers them. And so he anticipates a question that would have come from the Galatians or from his opponents, and this is verse 19. He says, so then why then the law? It would be him saying it this way. After he's just taken them back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, he would be saying something like, and you might be asking yourself right now, why then the law? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me go ahead and answer it. That's what Paul tends to do because he's amazing at debate. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, or he goes on to ask, why then the law? It's a good question. It's a really good question because as he has been pressing justification by faith alone, it raises that question that if we come to know Jesus by faith alone, then what was the point of the Mosaic law? What was it all for? And in this next section, Paul now unpacks the purpose of the law. So we looked at the permanency of the promise. Now we're looking at the purpose of the law. And I'm only going to address a few things since we have a lot of scripture to look at. But in addition to that, we're going to revisit the purpose of the law at the end of chapter four, going into chapter five. So all of that being said, that begs the question, why then the law? I want to hook you up with three reasons, okay, given to us by our brother Paul here. The first one is, he answers it in verse 19, the first one is that the law reveals our sin. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. The law reveals our sin. That's one of the purposes of the law. See, it exposes not only what we do or don't do, but it exposes our depravity. And depravity is a very, very strong word. It means that we are morally corrupt. But to be fair, there is a distinction. In other words, we are not utterly depraved. In other words, that we are the worst that we could ever be, but we are totally depraved in that there isn't a single part of us that has gone unaffected by sin. The law exposes our hearts. The law exposes our sin. And very simply, we don't like it. That's it. We don't like it. And primarily, we don't like it because we like to sin. And when someone calls us on it, we are offended. And what happens when you're offended? It's almost like Michael Scott in the office when Pam calls him out and he says, you know what? I'm just you know, like the idea. Well, the, I'm taking this out of context. It would be as if he would be responding. You know what? I'm just going to sin even harder because when you get called out and you get offended, 
right? What do you do? You want to defend yourself. You want to stand on some morally high ground. You got 10 reasons as to why you just made the decision you just made. And you want to tell everybody how justified you are on those reasons. Or you'll pull the whole only God can judge me card, which is dumb. And I'll tell you why in a bit. But before we get there, right? Like at the end of the day, that's what the law does. Or that's one of the things that the law does. It reveals our sin. It exposes our hearts. And when our hearts are exposed, if we are not humbled, what you and I tend to do is that we tend to sin even more. That's why he says it added transgression. It's not that we were sinless before. It's that all of a sudden when we, it was exposed and revealed and put in our face, we're like, you know what? I'm going to sin even harder. It reveals our sin. Since it's October 31st, I figured I'd quote a reformer. This is what John Calvin says. The law was given in order to make transgressions obvious and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. Church, it is only when we see our guilt that we see how much we need Jesus. I mentioned a while ago, uh, there are songs that would say only God can judge me. That is very true, but it is also very scary. Even the band that we saw, one of the lines of their songs is, don't ever judge me. Both of these are incredibly dangerous because both want to subscribe to a licensure of sin. We say it all the time, you do you. You do your thing, I do my thing. But think about it. When you do what you want, the irony is that it gets worse. When you do what you want, the irony is that you actually further imprison yourself. That's the irony of it. The law exposes our corruption. The law exposes our moral flexibility, if you will. The law exposes the true condition of our hearts. That's what Paul means in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law reveals our sin and how much we like to sin. That's the first thing. That's at least one of the purposes of the law. The second is that the law reveals its own limitations. The law reveals its own limitations. See, when the law was given, and this is still in verse 19, it was passed from God to angels to Moses and then the people of God. That sounds like a lot of really good organization and communication, but it sounds like a lot. So I think it's necessary to touch on that a little bit and then get back to the law and its limitations. Because I know you read this part 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And that verse tends to get a lot of attention because angels, right? So might as well do it, right? Here is what one commentator says regarding verse 19 and 20. He goes on to say, The reason, or actually, let me back this up. The reason for the angels that Paul mentions them there is because God can't be in the presence of sinful people. So when he hooked Moses up through the law, it was done through the angels. The angels gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to the people of God. Here's how he would say it. The law required a mediator because sinners cannot come directly into God's presence. We stand at a distance. The promise came to Abraham firsthand from God. And the law comes to people thirdhand. God, the angels, Moses, the mediator, and finally the people. So when we consider the angels, you might ask, well, what about the angels? Which is kind of strange if you think about it because Paul moves very quickly. In other words, he doesn't just mention the angels because he's being hyper-spiritual. He's just being biblical about it. Okay? And so when Paul mentions them, when Paul mentions the angels or he mentions the presence of the angels, this wasn't something that was stunning to him or would have been stunning to the Galatians. And the reason for that is because several other texts in Scripture confirm the angels' presence when God gave the law to Moses. Though it is not recorded in Exodus 19, Moses himself talks about it in Deuteronomy 33 Verse 2, if you want to look at that up. Additionally, King David makes mention of it in Psalm 68. It is also confirmed in Acts 7 and further confirmed in Hebrews 2. There you go. All right. With that being said, Paul isn't trying to give angels more attention, the more attention that they need, right? Like many people do. People will read that and be like, what does that mean? What about the angels? What were they doing? They were just helping, man. That's literally what they were doing. They helped. That's their job, right? That's as far as Paul goes. That's why he moves on so quickly. If you and I are going to take anything away from that verse regarding the angels, because you want to talk about it, it's that number one, angels worship God. You should too. Number two, angels are not to be worshiped. They would tell you the same thing. Okay? They are absorbed with God. You should be too. If you got beef with like angels and their presence during the law, but not the substitutionary work of Christ, then we got something to talk about. Everybody stays quiet. There we go. Back to circling back, right? So the law and its limitations, right? The law and its limitations, right? Though the law reveals our sin, it was also designed to teach us how to live. The law has a standard because it's based on God's character, but it's temporary. That means all of its rites, all of its ceremonies, all of its rituals and sacrifices and curses, its usefulness was meant to pave the way for the gospel. And the only one who could fulfill the requirement of perfect righteousness from the law was Jesus. So to be fair, the law does have a purpose. We've looked at that it reveals our sin. It exposes our hearts. But it also had limits. 
even though it was to reveal our hearts and teach us how to live, it had limits. And all of those different things were fulfilled in Christ. The third thing, the law leads to faith. See, the law teaches us how to live, and the law reveals our sinful corruption. And it is there, I'm going to slow it down, it is there. It is there that we realize no matter how strong, how smart, how sustainable we are, we cannot save ourselves. Verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could lead to life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. We are in need of a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. We are in need of a Savior, and his name is Jesus. See, the law cannot save. It can only condemn. It cannot make us righteous. In the next verse, Paul writes that the law imprisoned everything under sin, meaning that the only way we could be released from our morally corrupt prison is by faith in the one who has fulfilled the promise given to Abraham. The law helps us look for a savior. The law shows us that God's mercy is our only escape. The law teaches us that there is a different way that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so as we wrap up that section, the law is a good thing. I think sometimes many Christians will look at the law or consider the law and say, that's bad, that's, not, that's Old Testament, we're New Testament, as if like we're not all the way across. Right? The thing about it is, the law is a good thing for what it exposes and for what it teaches. And truthfully, check it, hear me on this, truthfully, the law isn't the problem. We're the ones who break it every day. The law isn't the problem. And as one commentator put it, the law can prove that we are sinners, but it cannot make us right with God. It is not life-giving. It is transgression increasing and therefore death-producing. He concludes, but the law can lead us to Christ. For only when the law reveals our sin will we ever start to look for the free grace that God has for us in the gospel. The law reveals our hearts. The law was designed to teach us how to live, but even at that was temporary. And the law leads us to faith. Because when we realize the depth of our sin, we see how big Jesus is and how much we are in need of Jesus. And so now we conclude. We go to the final section. This is verses 23 to 29. And in this text, Paul begins to pull everything together. 
In the first two sections that we looked at, Paul makes a clear distinction between the promise of God and the purpose of the law. They are not equal, but they are distinct in their function. They are complementary. So in this section, this is verses 23 to 29, Paul in brevity is going to show us their partnership, the promise of faith and the works of the law. And Paul is going to begin this section by providing us with two further examples of the purpose of the law by way of analogy. In one example, the law is like a prison warden. In the other example, the law is like a guardian. So let's look at verse 23. Verse 23, Paul opens. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's a lot, right? Here we go. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying on one hand, the law is like a prison warden. In other words, we are confined to the prison that is our sin the law is our warden, and the law disciplines us when we get out of hand. And he's saying that's not necessarily a bad thing. It restrains us. Then, on the other hand, the law is kind of like a guardian. Because it restrains us, it also helps to guide us. It teaches us, for instance, how to live. That's good news. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And in both of these examples, Paul talks about the coming faith. Here, faith refers to a person, that is, Jesus Christ. So now that Jesus has come and fulfilled the promise of God to Abraham as his truest offspring, as Jesus has lived the righteous life that we cannot live and died the death we deserve in our place and for our sin, through faith in Christ, we now belong to God. And this is where he starts unpacking it in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul talks about the temporary use of the law, that it has now been fulfilled in Christ. And because Christ has fulfilled it, because Christ has come, because Christ has paved a way for us to be reconciled to God, by faith, you are sons of God. So this is where I guess you would look at it in terms of I suppose, application. In verse 26, Paul hammers identity. He's saying, because of what Jesus has done, because he has paved a way for you to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven of your sin, you, your status, has now changed. At one point, you were at war with God. You are no longer at war with God. At one point you were orphaned. Now you are a son or a daughter. At one point you were lost. Now you are found. At one point you were an enemy. Now you are a friend. Your entire identity, your status has changed. That's what he's getting at in verse 26. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. And then in verse 27, he says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. He's saying, 
as a son or a daughter, your inheritance, check it, your inheritance is what God promised Abraham. Forgiveness of sin, eternal life, sonship. And a sign of your sonship is baptism. Not that it is salvific, but that it is a public expression of an internal work of God for you. It would be like him saying this, baptism is like you getting your adoption papers. It's legally binding, it's sealed, it's authenticated, no one can take this from you. Paul says something similar to the Romans in chapter six. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul hits at something that he hit at Galatians 2.20. We have union with Christ. Your status has changed. That's one. You have union with Christ. What does he say in Galatians 2.20? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. You now have union with Christ. He continues. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are not only part of the family of God, you are the family of God. All of us were equally unable to save ourselves because of our sin. All of us equally need the same cross, the same tomb, the same Savior. We all need Jesus. And family has an implication that if you belong to God, you belong to everyone else who belongs to God. We are still distinct. Paul addresses things like gender and ethnicity and status. We are still distinct, but our primary identity is in Christ. And so why does unity matter? It matters because primarily we adore Jesus more than anyone or anything. This then changes how we interact, how we speak, and how we live with one another. Unity, not uniformity, is a display of the goodness of God's grace and mercy in Jesus. And finally, the fruit of of justification, forgiveness. Your status has been changed. You are now united to Christ. You are walking in unity with one another and lest you forget, you have been forgiven. You have been totally, absolutely, and completely forgiven. Look how he closes verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise set back all the way in Genesis 12. You're forgiven. 
because of how Jesus lived and because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, we are called sons and daughters to the Father. The life that we could not live was lived by Christ in our place. The death that we deserve was given to Jesus in our place. Paul walks, and we're wrapping it up, Paul walks through the permanence of God's promise and the purpose of the law to prove one giant point. The sonship and union that we have received in Christ is permanent through the gift of faith alone. Our works matter, but only as a result of who we are. The Christian knows who they are because they know the one who they belong to. And not only does this shape how we live, it shapes the very core of the new heart we have received. So in closing, Christian, where do you look for truth outside of Scripture? What or who persuades you to turn or look away from Jesus? What or who persuades you to forget your inheritance that is in Christ? This morning, gaze and consider Jesus before you. Come before Jesus. Fix your eyes upon his beauty and splendor. Confess your sin before him. Repent and bear fruit. And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. You are an enemy to God, at war with him, estranged from him, in rebellion toward him, and your heart is one of stone. So the question is, would you like a new heart? One of flesh. Then look to Jesus, for he is the faithful one, the trailblazer, the one who makes it possible to be reconciled with God. Not of your own doing, but by his mercy. And it is by his grace that you can come and know him today through faith. Place your trust in Jesus Repent of your sin and go bear fruit. Church, the promise of God is permanent sonship and union with Christ by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord, you are our shepherd, yet we still want. You promise us rest, but we refuse to be still. You are our righteousness, but we look to your own works. You are with us, but yet we still fear and do not trust your promises of protection. Lord, forgive us 
and cause us to embrace your goodness and mercy that we may truly believe that you will be with us all the days of our life. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus' work done for us, calling us to yourself, justifying us, forgiving us, and calling us beloved. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.